Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon. Welcome to Soul to Soul on this boiling hot Wednesday afternoon here in Johannesburg. And uh, let's discuss a little bit about this week and the significant dates that appeared this week. And then we'll get on to some other interesting things to talk about. So let's start with today is the 12th day of the month of Adar Rishon in the year 5784, according to the Jewish calendar, the 21st of February 2024. So let's go back to Monday. Monday was the 10th of Adar. The 10th of Adar is the anniversary when Israel and Egypt exchanged ambassadors in 1980, marking a new era of cordial cold diplomacy. In 1973, the Egyptian president Anwar Sadat had orchestrated an attack on Israel, which is known as the Yom Kippur War, but after suffering defeat, he became resigned to Israel's existence. In 1978, Sadat and Menachem Begin, who was the Prime Minister of Israel, signed the Camp David Peace Agreement, for which they both received the Nobel Peace Prize. Much of the Arab world was outraged by Sadat's overtures towards Israel, and he was very sadly assassinated by a Muslim extremist in 1981. So it's important to remember these milestones, these dates, um, this one being um, 44 years ago exactly, Monday 44 years ago, because they uh, tell us a lot. They speak to us. Um, in a way of describing the real situation in the Middle East. The Middle East is a rough neighborhood, and Israel is a lamb amongst the wolves. Israel is outnumbered, both in terms of geographical territory and in terms of population. Uh, uh, many, many, tens to one, almost a hundred to one. And um, Israel is constantly on the brink of being wiped out, of being destroyed. And it's obviously an issue with Muslim fundamentalism that the Muslim world can't tolerate that the land of Israel, which is the ancient homeland of the Jewish people and has been for three and a half thousand years and has had existence of Jews for three and a half thousand years without any break. Um, so we are the indigenous people of those lands. But since the land of Israel was once under Muslim rule, which when it was controlled by the Ottoman Empire, so the Muslim world cannot make peace with the fact that Israel is now controlled by Jews. And I don't think the Muslim world ever will make peace with that, which is really such a tragic situation. And unfortunately, Israel has to continue to develop and build and thrive, which please God it will, in a very difficult environment. And that's why constantly, since its birth uh, 75 years ago, so Israel has faced wars and has faced, has been threatened and has been constantly on the back foot. There's nothing more that Israel wants. There's nothing more that the the population of Israel wants. There's nothing more that Jews around the world want is peace. We don't have any joy and pride in the fact that 
we have to send our young men to into military service and they have to go fight wars and be killed. There's nothing more Israel would want than peace to this day. And uh, the propaganda you hear in the press, which says otherwise, is false, is not accurate. That's fake news. Israel and Israelis across the spectrum, left and right, all want peace. They just disagree on how to achieve peace. So those on the left in Israel say that, you know, if we we, uh, extend our hand and the overtures to the other side, so certainly then we will be met with... uh, a positive response. I wish that was true. Unfortunately, history has shown that's not the case. And people on the right in Israel say we have to face the reality. We have to face what the Arab world um, wants to do and how they see Israel and how they constantly are not prepared to be at peace with Israel. And we have to therefore act accordingly and defend ourselves and con- continue to develop the state of Israel. Um, so the peace accords with Egypt, which were signed in 1978, proved that Israel wants peace and will stand by any peace agreements. And Israel's offered the Palestinians on five different occasions um, a peace agreement and an independent Palestinian state. And, you know, the whole world saying now, well, we must make a Palestinian state. Gaza was a Palestinian state. Israel left Gaza in 2005 unilaterally gave complete independence to Hamas. Uh, Those um, reports that Gaza was the largest open-air prison in the world is also fake news. That's a lie. It's not true. The Palestinians were completely autonomous and independent. Israel controlled some of the shipments going in and out because they didn't want the Arab world to arm Hamas in order to attack Israeli civilians. That was the only thing Israel was in control of. But everything else was completely under the control of the Palestinian people. They voted in Hamas in 2007, and Hamas has been entirely bent, not on building the infrastructure and on the improving the quality of life for the Palestinian people, but rather on making war with Israel, on building up an arsenal of rockets and firing them into Israel, into our civilian centers, and our innocent civilians have had to live with these rockets being fired all constantly from Gaza um, and, go, and, and the international aid, which is the largest amount of aid given to any people um, in proportion, it's even greater than the Marshall Plan after World War II to build up Europe. There have been billions of dollars being sent into um, Gaza and that's been taken and controlled entirely by Hamas and used for them to build up their military, to build up their tunnel network, to build up their arsenal to attack Israel, not to improve the plot and the infrastructure of the Palestinian people. That's the reality. Those are the facts. And there was peace before October 7th. And Hamas attacked the civilians of Israel and brutally murdered and massacred 1,200 people and raped women and tied babies together and burnt babies. That's just unspeakable the atrocities that they committed. Israel has no choice but to ensure that a southern border is safe and doesn't face the threat again of being um, infiltrated and massacred by Hamas. And Hamas openly say that they'll continue to do this over and over again. They won't stop. So what choice does Israel have? Israel uh, must now withdraw its troops and not go into Rafah 
and allow the last four battalions of Hamas to still be in existence, that would be suicide for Israel. That would be suicide for the land of Israel. And the only language that's understood in the area of their strength. So if Israel does that and backs off and Hamas has a victory, so it will only embolden our enemies who are many, and mainly Iran, who's funding Hamas and Hezbollah in the north. And so Israel has got no choice. Israel must complete the job. They must go into Rafa. They are, you know, it's the only military in the world, Israel, that um, states what they plan to do. You know, from a military point of view, that's crazy. You, you're removing the element of surprise. Israel does so in order to minimize civilian casualties. Israel is telling the people of Gaza, please get out of Rafa. And there are humanitarian corridors that the people can escape with. Israel is facilitating that. Again, the fake news says there's nowhere for the people to go. They can't get out. Israel is making sure there are humanitarian corridors. Hamas is keeping them from escaping. Hamas is stopping the people from leaving. So Israel gets blamed again for Hamas's atrocities and crimes against humanity. But Israel must complete the job and ensure that the, the threat of Hamas is removed and uh, in, in order to guarantee the safety of her civilians, which is the responsibility of the government of Israel. So we see that Israel will stand by peace agreements, wants peace, as they've done so with Egypt for the last 44 years. And if the Palestinians would put down their arms and make peace, they would have a state tomorrow. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you shortly. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So, Monday was the 44th anniversary of the uh, ambassadors being exchanged between Israel and Egypt. Yesterday, the 11th of Adar, because today is the 12th of Adar, yesterday was the 11th. Yesterday was the yacht site of the Chida, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, the great Sfadi sage known as the Chida. He was born in 1724. He died in the year 1807. He was born in Yerushalayim and for many years served as a roving emissary for Jews in Israel, traveling to hundreds of Jewish communities throughout Europe and North Africa to raise money. The Chidah studied under the great and holy Orachai Makadosh, and he wrote more than 70 works um, on Jewish commentary and Jewish law, um, including the famous Birke Yosef. He also served for a time as the chief rabbi of Egypt. He died in Italy and was right, later reinterred to his beloved Yerushalayim. Um, so the Chidah was one of the great geniuses that lived in the um, 18th century, and had a great impact on the Jewish world. I remember one thing that he wrote, um, which always stayed with me, is that he would say, Chida said that you are what you think. So that which is going on in our minds, in our heads, what are we thinking about? Are we thinking about lofty things like God and our purpose in the world and being holy and going beyond the physical material world and achieving a spiritual connection? Or are we thinking about our great appetites for power and pleasure. That which consumes our thoughts defines who we are. You are what you think, said the Holy Chida. Okay, so let's carry on. Um, today is the 12th of Adar, 
that, uh, and remember, this is Adar Aleph. So that this year there are two Adars because within the Jewish calendar, we follow the lunar calendar, not the solar calendar. We lo lose 11 days a year, 354 days in the lunar calendar. And we have to make sure that Pesach is always in springtime. Pesach is called Chag Ha'aviv. So in order to make up for those 11 days lost, we add a leap year, a second other. We have um, seven leap years every 19 years. The Machsor Katan, the, we have a cycle of 19 years, which is called the short cycle. And within that, there are seven leap years. So seven um, leap years every 19 years. This year being a leap year. So this is Adar Aleph. Um, we're then going to have an Adar base, a second Adar, Adar Sheni. Um, and uh, so, by the way, Purim, which is usually today's 12th of Adar, Purim is the 14th of Adar, Purim is always in the second Adar. Why is that? Because the Gemara says we need a smichas geula le geula. We need to make sure that the two redemptions are connected to each other. The redemption of Purim, where Hashem did great miracles to save the Jewish people. The redemption of Pesach, where Hashem took us out of Egypt. So we want to connect the two. Rather than having a month in between and, and Purim being celebrated in the first Adar, Purim is therefore always in the second Adar. If a person has a Yotzat in Adar, unless their loved one actually passed away in a year there was a leap year, there was Adar Sheni, we usually commemorate the Yotzat on both Adars. So a person should say Kaddish and should light a Yotzat candle, both on the date in the first Adar and the date in the second Adar. So today being the 12th of Adar Rishon, Today marks the dedication of Herod's renovations to the second temple in Yerushalayim in the year 11 before the Common Era. So today um, is uh, the anniversary of that date, of the 11th before the Common Era, uh, where Herod, just over 2,000 years ago, that's 2,035 years ago today, is when Herod completed his renovations of the second temple. So again, you know, the Jews are there. We have our second temple. This is even before the birth of Islam. There's no such a thing as Islam in the world. Islam only came about in the 7th century of the Common Era. So this is 600 years before Islam, when Herod completed his renovations of Baishani of the second temple. Herod was king of Judea in the 1st century before the Common Era, and he constructed many grand pro projects like the fortresses at Masada and Herodium, which is not far from Jerusalem, incredible places to visit. Your next visit to Israel, make an effort to go to Masada, go to Herodium. Um, he also built the city of Caesarea, Caesarea, and the fortifications around the old city in Jerusalem. The most ambitious of Herod's projects was the rebuilding of the temple, which was in disrepair after standing for 300 years. Herod's renovations include a huge man-made platform that remains today the largest man-made platform in the history of the world. It took 10,000 people 10 years to build um, the retaining walls around the Temple Mount. The Western Wall, the Kotel Hamaravi, where, um, which still stands today, is part of the retaining western wall of the temple. So Herod, uh, Herod built up the temple to be high up on this very high platform with retaining walls that would hold it in place. The, the Kotel is the western retaining wall of the temple. The temple itself was a phenomenal site covered in gold and marble. As the Gomorrah says, 
that a person who did not see Herod's building has never seen in their life a truly grand building. That's how spectacular it was. It actually took your breath away, the second temple that Herod built. So um, we are 2,035 years today since that project was completed by Herod in Yerushalayim, Iraq, Kodesh. Tomorrow, being the 13th of Adar, is the yacht site of the great and holy Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was born in 1895, um, in, was then Russia, Lithuania, those borders moved, and uh, he moved to the United States in the 30s, just before uh, World War II, and he died in the year 1986. And he was probably the greatest leader of the Jewish community um, in the 20th century. He escaped, um, uh, was actually under the rule of Stalin um, when he escaped in 1937. He settled in New York. He became recognized as the leading rabbinic fi uh, figure of his generation, issuing thousands of responsa on all matters of Jewish law published in a collection called Igrus Moshe, the Letters of Moshe. So in those days, the questions, the shilas that Rabbanim got were written in as letters, and then the Rob would respond in a letter. So Rabbi Moshe did that, and he then um, put together all of his responses in what he called Igrus Moshe, the Letters of Moshe, which is a magnificent work of great genius and studied um, by Rabbanim today to see how Rabbi Moshe learned the Gemurras and how he applied the principles to modern day issues. Uh, Rav Moshe was known for his incredible command of Shas, of the Torah Shabalpi, of the written Torah. Um, it's 1711 double pages. Rav Moshe knew Shas backwards and forwards and inside out. And that in, uh, enabled him to delve into topics of modern medicine, of economics, of ethics. And he demonstrated the power of Torah um, a, in which he, uh, the principles of the Torah he integrated into the modern world. Rav Moshe was born on the 7th of Adar, and there was, of course, the birthday of Moshe Rabbeinu, after who he was named. So he was born on the birthday and the yotel of Moshe Rabbeinu, and therefore he was named Moshe. Um, he was known for his incredible humility and his concern for every human being. Um, he was buried in Jerusalem where 200,000 people attended his funeral in 1986. Um, he was buried on Purim Day in 1986. Um, and uh, that was the great Rav So there are many beautiful, powerful, legendary stories about Rav Moshe, but his unbelievable care for others. So although he was what we call the Gabal Ador, the great leader of our generation, in terms of his rabbinic knowledge and his ability to apply Torah principles to the modern world, um, and therefore, there were thousands of shyness, thousands of questions from Jews across the globe would arrive at Rav Moshe's desk. But even so, and even though he was so uh, under such tremendous demand from the Jewish people, he always was kind and gentle and humble. Gosh, if so many people were pursuing my knowledge, I don't think I would be humble like he was. Um, he always had patience for people. And you, a famous story that uh, the uh, in the week of Shiva, after he had passed away, somebody got a call on Friday afternoon to say, is uh, the rabbi there? And the person answered the phone and said, unfortunately, he passed away this week. The person said, oh, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. So the, uh, the the person who answered the phone said, why, what is the problem? 
the person said, well, uh, I'm not sure when the Sabbath begins because every Friday afternoon I would ask, phone the rabbi and he would tell me when to light candles when Sabbath begins. So, you know, that was Rav Moshe, incredible humility. You know, just get yourself a luach. You know, this is the person who's dealing with all the important questions of the Jewish people, but he would take the call and he would answer every single Friday. That was the humility of Rav Moshe. There's another famous story that he, um, in his older age, was being driven to somewhere and uh, the, the, his usual driver couldn't make it. So one of the Talmudim of the yeshiva was going, he was a Rosh Yeshiva of what was called Ferris Yerushalayim in the Lower East Side in, in New York. And one of the students offered to take the Rebbe Reb Moshe to wherever he needed to go. And uh, as Reb Moshe got in the car, this, this student closed the, the door on his hand. And Reb Moshe didn't say anything. He kept quiet and he waited for the student to walk around. Then he opened the door and he closed it again. And his hand was bleeding from, you know, being shown on the door. But he didn't say anything because he knew that this young man would have been devastated and heartbroken that he had harmed the, the Rosh Hashiva of Moshe. So he didn't want to embarrass the person. So it was easy. He had sufficient self-control not to, um, not to take, not to cry out in pain in order not to embarrass um, that young man. So we see the unbelievable, um, the unbelievable level of Reb Moshe and his tremendous um, self-control and humility. And so tomorrow is his Yotzat, the 13th of Adar. So let's just mention one more thing with regards to the dates this week, and that is, of course, Friday, 14th Adar. Now, so as I mentioned, if it wasn't a leap year, we'd be celebrating Purim, the great, wonderful festival in which we celebrate the miracles that Hashem performed on behalf of the Jewish people when they faced extinction. They were going to be killed, going to be wiped out um, in a holocaust, uh, in a genocide by Haman, who wanted to destroy all the Jews. And Hashem orchestrated events in a manner that that which Haman wanted to do to the Jewish people ended up happening to him. And the gallows that he built for Mordechai, he ended up on with a a stunning turn of events and a turnaround of the situation. So we celebrate that on Purim, and this year we'll be doing so next month in, in Purim Shani, in the second Purim. Um, but it's an amazing thing that Hitler was obsessed with Purim, and he specifically chose the date of Purim to carry out particularly cruel, cruel acts against the Jewish people. It was on the 14th of Adar in 1942 that in the town of Zednutska, Wola, in Nazi-occupied Poland, 1942, 10 Jews were hanged by the SS in a sadistic parody of the events of the Book of Esther. So just as Haman's 10 sons were hung on the 14th of Adar, so the Nazis perpetrated the same thing to hang 10 prominent Jews in that town in 1942. To add to this debacle, the Gestapo ordered all Jews out of their homes in order to witness the hangings. On Purim Day, the following year, 1943, there was another Purim massacre in the Polish town of Pietrikov. Uh, that might be familiar, Pietrikov. That was the town where Rabbi Lau, uh, Chief Rabbi Lau of Jerusalem, and uh, he, 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 his son is now Chief Rabbi of Israel, and his father, Rabbi Israel Lau, was, the, was previously the Chief Rabbi of Israel. That he, Rabbi Lau, Rabbi Israel, Meir Lau, came from Pietrikov. Um, and on that town, he must have been there to witness this hanging. In 1943, 10 Jews were executed. Hitler harbored a venomous hatred for the holiday of Purim, 
when the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, he banned the reading of Megillus Esther, and he ordered that all synagogues be closed on Purim. And Hitler said, unless Germany is victorious, a jury could then, in other words, uh, if, if, if Germany are victorious, there will be no more Purim because there will be no more Jews. Um, but if, if Germany are not victorious, the jury could then celebrate the destruction of Europe by a second triumphant Purim festival. Those are the words of Hitler. Quite unbelievable, isn't it? And incredibly, when the Nazi officer, Julius Streicher, ascended to the gallows to be hung um, after the Nuremberg trials, he shouted Purim Fest 1946. So Hitler was fully cognizant of Purim being the day when the clashes of Amalek and of evil wanting to destroy the Jewish people would um, actually succeed or fail. He knew that Purim was a time when the Jewish people were successful against Amalek in, at the times of Purim, and he therefore was conscious that this was a day that indicated either success of Klai Israel or the success of Amalek. And thank God the forces of Hitler and the Nazis were defeated and the Jewish people were victorious. And so that will be in the future because we have Hashem with us. It's just up to the Jewish people to do our job, to cling to Hashem and fulfill our responsibilities, our spiritual covenant with Hashem. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Let's now turn our focus to a little bit about Moshe Rabbeinu, the great Moses. Moshe Rabbeinu's Yotzat was on the 7th of Adar, which is only five days ago. Um, we see that Moshe Rabbeinu, after the Chet Eagle, so next week's Pasha tells us about the sin of the golden calf, and it's important to understand precisely what happened over there and what went wrong and how the Jewish people um, turned away from Hashem um, at that time. It's very, it's incorrect to think that, you know, they worshipped Hashem and now they worship idols. You know, that's a very infantile, immature understanding. What really happened was that they felt they needed an, an uh, emissary, a medium through which to communicate with Hashem. They knew Hashem was true. Hashem was talking out of Egypt. They saw the unbelievable miracles of Egypt. They saw the splitting of the sea. So it's not that they forgot about Hashem and betrayed Hashem, but they felt that they weren't on a level to communicate directly with Hashem. Remember, they received the Torah at Mount Sinai and it blew the souls out of their bodies. And so when Moshe had not returned from receiving the Torah, they felt they needed some sort of emissary. And the bad idea that was suggested to them from the Erev Rav, which is the mixed multitudes, those individuals that joined the Jewish people when they left Egypt, they weren't Jewish, they weren't part of Klai Israel, but they went along for the ride because they saw that Egypt was being destroyed. So they said, build, an, build a calf. And the Jews were in a panic when they didn't see Moshe. Said 40 days, he'd be back. They miscalculated. They counted the day he went up, but really they should have counted 40 complete days. And he was only due to return the next day when he did return. But they in, already by then were uh, in a complete frenzy and panic, and they built this calf. 
And after the calf was built, so that was the, the mistake they made. It wasn't a massive error to worship idols. It was a finely tuned error that they needed a, a intermediary, but they shouldn't have built that intermediary. They should have waited for Moshe. Um, that was the error and mistake. And after that happened, Hashem said to Moshe, look, the people didn't follow your instruction and they weren't patient to wait for you. Um, and they, you know, got taken up by panic and by, by anxiety, by the frenzy that they were whipped up, to, up into by the air of wrath. And so let's start again, I should said to Moshe. That's the people, you know, they displayed such a, a lack of fortitude and of resilience. Um, we, the, this project, this, you know, this is this, the whole world was created for the people that received the Torah. And so let's start again from you. Let's wipe out the Jewish people and it will be you and your family that will be the ones that receive the Torah and that move forward um, and will carry the destiny of the Jewish people. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, no. Moshe Rabbeinu said, I can't, I can't uh, come to terms with that. I can't live with that. If you're going to wipe out the Jewish people, wipe me out too. Moshe said, remove me from your book. Um, and so it was really a test to see how Moshe would would deal with the situation. Of course, he was the ultimate leader. He was the quintessential um, leader of the Jewish people. And he said, I, I cannot carry on without the people. Um, and so Hashem said, okay, so in some respect, that will be fulfilled. That if a, a tzaddik says something, it is fulfilled in some regard. So if we take the word, uh, so Moshe said, you can break sifrecha, into Sefer Chaf, into the book 20. So let's now work out from the beginning of the Torah till now, the Parshios that we have. So there are 12 Parshios, the 12 Parshas in Sefer Bereshis, 12 Sedras. And now in Shmois, we have Shmois, Ve'era, Bo, Bashalach Yisro Mishpatim. So we've had six in Shmois, and then Truma is seven. So now Tetzaveh, this week's Parsha, is number eight in Sefer Shmos. So if you add 12 to eight, you're 20. So the so Moshe says, remove me from your 20th book, which is the 20th Pasha of the Torah, which is Pasha Tzitzaveh. And that's why Pasha Tzitzaveh is the only Pasha since the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu where his name is not mentioned. So Hashem removed him from the book, from the 20th book, which is Pasha Tzitzaveh, the Pasha we read this week, we see it's the only Pasha where Moshe's name is not mentioned. Even though it's all about instructions from Hashem to Moshe to the people, Hashem, Moshe's name is not mentioned. Um, because he said, if you're going to wipe out the people, wipe me out as well. So, so it's a hint to that. It's an allusion to that. The 20th Sefer, Misifrecha Sefer Chaf. But actually, it's a, I heard a beautiful verse by uh, Rav Gav Friedman, who said that actually we see that Moshe Rabbeinu is secretly present in the parsha because what is his name? His name is Moshe, right? And if we take the hidden letters of the word Moshe, so um, we often do that to to uh, get to certain hints in the Torah. So Moshe, the first letter, it's Mem Shin Hey, right, Moshe? So if you take the the hidden letters of Mem, right? So so Mem is a Mem Mem Mem. So that's Mem. And then shin is, if you spell out shin, it's shin yud nun. So you've got a mem and a yud and a nun. 
and hey is hey alaf and an alaf. If you add them up, that's 101. There are 101 verses, 101 psukim in Parshas Tzavah. So although Moshe is not mentioned explicitly because of he still is in the hidden part of his name is 101. It's 101 psukim, 101 verses. This is Pasha. So Moshe Rabbein is still very much there, but although it's in a um, it's in a covert way, not in an overt way, which is quite beautiful. So we see from Moshe Rabbein what a true leader is. A true leader is the one who's connected to the people, who stands up for the people, even if the people are wrong, who loves the people, who empathizes with the people, who looks after the people. And I suppose every parent is a leader of that family, whether it's the mother or the father. So we learn from Moshe how to lead our families, that even if our families did something wrong, even if our children did something incorrect, we still love them, we still stand by them, we still support them, um, and we still are, are, um, are, uh, behave with great love and loyalty towards them. Okay, so let's carry on. Um, another idea I wanted to share with you, another beautiful idea, and that is that um, we see this week's Pasha deals with the, the big day kahuna, the clothing of the kohanim. And we see that the Big Day Kuhuna, the Sefer Achinuch points out a beautiful thing about the Big Day Kuhuna. He says that um, the Sefer Achinuch writes that the clothing of the Kohanim covered their entire body. So whether it was the Ketoinus, which was the tunic, um, it covered the body of the Kohen from, the, from his neck down to his ankle. And the Mitznefes, which was the turban that the Kohanim had to wear, the Mitznefes was 16 amos long and was wrapped around the head of the Kohen. So that's about eight meters wrapped around. The avnet, which was the belt, was actually 32 amos, which is 18 meters, 16 meters, sorry, wrapped around the body of the Kohen. So the Kohanim, wherever they looked, if they looked down, they saw their clothing. If they looked up, they saw this turban, which was wrapped around the head, so it protruded from the head. If they, um, they, their, their arms were covered all the way to the sleeves, all the way down. So the only exposed part was the head and their hands. Every other part, wherever they looked, Left, right, up, down, they saw this Kohanim. Says the Sefer Achinuch, because that was a reminder of Hashem. It's a reminder of these clothing that Hashem commanded them to wear. They would think of Hashem and think about their duty and their responsibility in the Beis Amigdash, in the temple, when they carried out the Avoida, the service in the temple. And he says, not only that, but also we know that we wear tefillin. So tefillin are, I think, phylacteries, whatever they are. I don't even know the, the translation properly. Tefillin are uh, every Jewish male over bar mitzvah is commanded to wear tefillin shil yad and tefillin shil rosh. They're those leather boxes that we place on our head and we place on our arm. And they're an ois. They're a sign that we are connected to God, that we bind God's word to our head. It's actually on the top of the head, not in the front. So people make a mistake and pull the filling down on their forehead. It's not supposed to be on the forehead. It's supposed to be the front of the fillings where the hairline is or was on a man, right on top of the head. It's on the place where the fontanelle is, the soft part of the baby's skull before it's developed. That's where the filling goes. It's like a crown right on top, not on the forehead, on the top of the head. Because that, according to our Hadith tradition, is where the neshama is. That's where the neshama rests. And on top of our neshama is our connection to Hashem, that Hashem is one, that we love Hashem that there's reward and punishment, that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. That's what's right on top of our being. That's the, the area of what we call the Ratzon. And that is connected to and dedicated to Hashem. Not only there, 
but it's also on our arms, on the bicep, that represents the power and the interaction, the interface of a human being with the world. So yeah, the, our strength, our soul, and the shama, our intellect, our thoughts, our spiritual being, our physical being, which is our bicep, opposite the heart, which is our feelings and emotions, they are all bound to our shame. They're all channeled to and dedicated to. That's what the act of putting a tefillin on is every day. And every Jewish male should do that every single day of their lives, apart from Shabbos and Yom Tov. It's a sign of our connection and of our love and of our binding ourselves to Hashem. One God that we love and that we serve and that there's reward and punishment that he took us out of the shrine. He's omnipotent, he's in full control. So those are the, that's the oyster, the sign of the tefillin. The Kohanim wore the tefillin. They wore their tefillin during the Avoida. Why did they do that? They had the big Aikuna, which were a sign, and now they have tefillin as well. You stay with us. We'll discuss that when we come back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're ending off with this beautiful idea that the big day kohana, the clothing that the kohanim wore while they were involved in the avoida, the service in the temple, were constant reminders, reminders says the Sefer Achinuch, of their serving Hashem. And they needed those reminders. You think maybe a koya in the Beis HaMikdash doesn't need to be reminded all the time that he is in the presence of God in the holiest place in the world, in the Makom HaMikdash, in the place of the temple, and that he's here to serve God and to do the avoid of the service of God in this holy place. Uh, if you think that's not the case, you're mistaken. The, Koh- the Kohanim needed those constant reminders, but that's not enough. They also wore their tefillin, which were a constant reminder of serving Hashem, of being connected to Hashem, of loving Hashem, of understanding that there's reward and punishment in the world and Hashem is omnipotent. So one sign wasn't enough for the Kohanim. They need more signs. So if that was the case for the Kohanim, all the more so, all of us, we need constant signs, reminders of our purpose, of our existence, of our striving to connect to God. Because as we all know, this world is filled with distractions. This world is filled with diversions. This world is beautiful and colorful and has so much in it. And we have so many drives and desires and wants and inclinations. And unless we check ourselves, unless we put in boundaries, unless we clearly know who we are and where we're going and what our purpose is in this world, we will constantly follow our passions for power and pleasure. And we will be like sophisticated animals just chasing our instincts. And therefore, we need reminders that that's not the purpose of our existence. That's not why God created us. We were created to rise above those physical urges and inclinations. And in order to be able to see the soul and connect to the soul and connect to that which is beyond this finite world, the infinite worlds of God and of eternity, that's our purpose. So the Kohanim in the base of Mikdash needed reminders. All the more so, we need constant reminders. Um, at the first line of the Shulchan Aruch, which is the book of Jewish law, says, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid. You, uh, you remember you constantly standing in the presence of God. That's the beginning of the life of a Jew. That consciousness, that awareness, that cognizance, 
that we are in Hashem's presence. Hashem is with us all the time. Uh, as Chazal tells us, we should, when we're davening, think about who you're standing in front of. Have that awareness and consciousness. So that's the purpose of our lives. That's we need those reminders to raise us, especially in today's world. You know, a rabbi once said that in the front of a shul, often you see Dalif Namiata Omed or Hashem Negdi Samid. We need that on as the home screen of our phones. Shavisi Hashem Negdi Tamid. That Hashem, we're standing in front of Hashem always. We need to remind ourselves in our world that there's a God, that we have to serve God, the purpose of our existence is to build a relationship with God and rise above the mountain physical world. So that's a great lesson we learned from the Kahneman of the Basin. It's an important lesson for us. And we and we have, Jerusalem puts in those reminders all the time for us. As I mentioned, the fitting that we wear every day, we come into our homes, we have mezuzahs that are reminders of Hashem. We have our head coverings, both men and women. A married woman covers her hair. A, a observant Jewish man is wearing a kippah all the time. It's reminding us of Hashem. We wear our tzitzis, constantly reminded of Hashem's presence. We say blessings before we eat, after we eat. We're davening three times a day. Um, everything that we do is governed by halacha. It's to remind us we have Shabbos Kodesh. We're thinking about Hashem all the time. These are reminders that are built in the system that assist us. It's a framework that assists us not just to think about ourselves. And in fact, we'll close with the words of the Chidah, because your thought it was yesterday, that you are what you think. The more we think about Hashem, the more reminders we have, the more... Um, connections we have to Hashem in our daily existence, the more we will think of Hashem and be aware of our purpose in this world to connect to God and to eternity and not just to constantly indulge in the pleasures that are around us in the material world. So Hashem, we should learn that great lesson from the Chida, as Yotzara was yesterday, we should learn the lesson of the Kohanim in the Beis HaMikdash, we should be thinking of Hashem as much as possible and please, God, rise above the mundane physical world and connect to our souls and connect to God and live a life of eternity in this physical world. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.